3: Hi hey guys, and welcome to a new episode of Unique Therapy Podcast. My name is Kat, and I am the host. I am a therapist that lives in Nashville and, yes, this podcast is called Unique Therapy. I am a therapist, but we always like to remind everybody at the beginning that these podcasts do not serve as therapy. They cannot serve as therapy. However, they might lead you to uh, discovering therapy and doing that on your own, or they might lead you to talk about something new in your own therapeutic process if you already have a therapist. Now, pretty pumped about the episode today because it just so happens that. The trajectory of the episodes this past couple of weeks, it's just like literally perfect. And I, I have to say, I want to take credit and that I did this on purpose, but I didn't. <laughs> So we're just going to go with it and I guess I could have lied and said I did, but you know, we we like to keep things real and transparent here. However, last week we talked about closure and this week we're talking about heartbreak and why it is so tough and how it affects our brain and and why we do get stuck in that place where we just can't find closure. And I had the perfect person to have this conversation with. His name is Guy Winch and he is a psychologist who has written three and is coming out with a fourth self-help book. He co-hosts a podcast with a guest we had on this past summer, Lori Gottlieb, called Dear Therapist. And um, he has multiple TED Talks. One, which is actually one of my favorite TED Talks, and it is called How to Fix a Broken Heart, which is also the name of one of his books. So I'm excited to be able to share with you some of the things that we talked about and just kind of get to continue to have this conversation after last week when we talked about closure. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get something out of it. You can find Guy and all of the things that we talk about in the show notes. I'll put his website, his TED Talks, all of that stuff. And I hope you make it all the way to the end because he actually gives a little piece of information about his podcast that might be very interesting to you guys. So make sure you get all the way to the end of the episode to hear that. And if any of you guys take him up on his offer, I want to know because I'm very jealous. So without wasting any more time, let's get straight to it. Here is my conversation with Guy Winch. Welcome back to a new episode of Unique Therapy. I have a really exciting guest for you guys that I think will be exciting and a number of ways. One, the topic that we're going to talk about, but also what he might offer in what he does and the things that um, he has going on as well, like his podcast, his books, all of the things, his TED Talks. And that person's name is Guy Wench. So welcome.
4: Well, uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you.
3: Of course. So this is a very timely episode because in the beginning of the year, I did a series on attachment theory, and then we like deep dived into the insecure attachments and i didn't even think about the order and way I was do and what I was doing, but i it's almost like divine intervention last week, I did an episode on closure mm-hmm. and it was rooted in romantic relationships and closure and in, in that and I think we can apply it to different parts of our lives but one thing that I wanted to definitely dive into with you was heartbreak and healing it and how to fix it and how to move through it. I especially liked your TED talk, how to fix mm-hmm. heartbreak. So good. And like simple. It's it's like you didn't make it too complicated, which I really enjoy. And then you have a a book as well. So I want to start there and see what happens. But I guess what I want to open with, and it seems almost like too simple of a question. I want you to talk about why heartbreak is like so horrible why it feels so horrible and why something like that we just want to snap out of feels like it can drag on forever and ever and ever
4: first of all yes this question is simple but as all things involving our psychology the answer is not what happens with heartbreak or what really attracted me to the topic to do the deeper dives that i've done on it with the ted talk and the book etc is that there is no other experience we have as humans in which you can take somebody with no psychiatric history whatsoever, and within an instant, make them act and feel completely crazy. It's a form of grief, that's what makes it so painful. But unlike regular grief, when we lose someone, the person is still around, number one. And number two, we therefore feel incredibly rejected. The other thing I wanna tell you about the emotional pain part of things is that scientists did studies functional MRI studies, brain scans, in which you lie in the tube. And this is the, the one of the studies that they did. It's going to sound horrific because it, it was horrific. But the study was this. They asked for people who've been recently heartbroken, put them in an MRI tube, which is this really tiny tube. It's like inches from your face. Had them put the picture of the person who, person who broke their heart on the top so they're staring at it. And then had them relive the breakup while the brain scanner was looking at what was happening in their brain. And it looked at the emotional pain they were feeling. And then they compared that pain to physical pain. The physical pain condition was put a heat inducer on someone's arm and turn up the heat until they can't stand it for more than seven seconds or to to get to seven seconds. And so if 10 is the highest uh, number there, the number that was equivalent to what was happening in the brain in heartbreak was eight. Like almost unbearable physical pain was the equivalent of the emotional pain that people were in, and to remind you when you're heartbroken for way longer than seven seconds.:
3: Yeah, <laughs> I like how you said um, it's an experience that like in an instant can make you like feel crazy, but also like sometimes act crazy and yes. i like hate using that word but it fits
4: me as well but it's just it's just descriptive yeah
3: and um i have had experiences where i remember there was one specific breakup it wasn't even that long of a relationship it was under a year but i remember sitting and being like i feel like my i'm dying like it i didn't know how to describe it but i was just like it's pain in my whole body and then i did some crazy things like i did some things that outside of that never would have done And, and I hear stories and I, I mean, I'm a a therapist, so, and I'm, and and you hear these stories as well as I hear stories of clients who normally I'm like, you, you're good to go. And then they go through this experience and they're telling me all these things that they've done. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if you were yourself a week ago watching this, you would be saying some horrible things about that person. And so I guess the physical pain is a good addition to like why is it so hard, but is that why we're acting that way? Because we want to get rid of that excruciating pain that we we like are out of our minds.
4: No, that's not why we're acting that way. Why we're acting that way, and back to the brain scans we go, is that the other thing that happens in the brain that we see with heartbroken people, is that the same mechanisms in the brain that get activated when literally heroin addicts are withdrawing from heroin are getting activated when we are quote unquote withdrawing from the drug of the love and the person that we've lost. There was even some debate and you know that I just saw but and it wasn't official but there's some debate among researchers about whether love should be classified as a form of addiction in certain ways because the withdrawal of it the heartbreak really looks like what you look like when you're withdrawing physically from opioids.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a really good picture. And I think a really good comparison, because we've talked a lot about addiction, like chemical addiction on here. And one of the shows that I hear over and over people talking about is um, Euphoria. Have you watched it?
4: I haven't, but I hear the same. Okay.
3: Thing. So yeah, here, I finally was like, okay, I'm just going to watch it and I'm not done with it. But it, it it's a, a really good picture. And with uh, did you ever watch Dope Sick? that came out in the last year too.
4: Um, Okay.
3: Okay. That's okay. That's actually a true story, but it's also a really good picture of watching somebody who is like a good person, right? Like you would never look at this person and demonize them or think that they're crazy or anything like that, but they get addicted to these drugs and then they start acting in ways that are so outside of their character. Right. And I really like it because it shows that like, addicts aren't we can't classify them as bad people because they're not at their core bad people I, I have this like uh, voice in my head that's saying like the crazy ex-girlfriend or the crazy ex-boyfriend or the crazy ex it's like they're not bad people they're going through something that they don't really know what to do with and they almost like an addict would do anything to stop the pain of withdrawal and if you've never felt that then you don't really understand like really how can it be that bad? But if, if you're somebody who has had your heart broken and you can flip-flop those comparisons, like we all have done things that were like, that was not me.
4: Right. But the way I classify it, and I agree with you entirely, these are not bad people. The word i would use to describe them, both the heartbroken and the addicts, is desperate. These are desperate, desperate yeah,
3: Desperate. Yeah. Desperate for like relief. Exactly. Yeah. From relief. Okay. So- I guess with that same idea with if going with the experiencing heartbreak is almost like going through like withdrawal. I kind of like feel like I know what you're going to say, but I want to talk about this is if we use that example of addiction, let's say you're a heroin addict. Well, I would say to the heroin addict, we need to get you off of this drug. So, we need to put you in detox and you're never going to use this again as the hope. With love, if love is the addiction, and heartbreak is the withdrawal, what is that process supposed to look like? Because yeah, we need you to go through the withdrawal and detox, but eventually I would hope that they can have a relationship again. So I guess I'm asking two questions here. One, what do you recommend people do to help them get through the withdrawal phase faster? And then after that, I want to kind of go into like, well, when is it okay to like get back out there?
4: of all i'll say that um i think i believe in the no contact rule not just because that's the drug and you want to get off the drug but because your goal when you're recovering from heartbreak is in my mind one goal and that goal is reduce the presence of that person in your thoughts and to the extent that you can do that more and more and more then you're getting over them it's at the beginning that you can't not think about them that's all you're thinking about you know etc so that's the the, the problem at the beginning. And then the more you want to get them out of your thoughts, the better. So to that end, the no contact rule is really important because you want to not reinforce, you know, it's like, if you're trying to quit smoking, it's not a great idea to take a puff every once in a while. You'll just increase the cravings yeah. all over again. But one of the things that's interesting to me because I do so much work with heartbreak is that the majority, the vast majority of times, not, well, not even the vast majority, but so, so often, when people are no longer in love with that person, when they're truly over the heartbreak, they look back on that person and they go, oh, wow, why was I so intensely desperate for that person? Yeah. I'm not even that impressed with them right now.
3: Yeah, wait. So I wonder what, what that is in your mind, like why we can be so obsessed with the person and like think I lost the love of my life. I mean, I've had that experience. And then a year later or however long later it takes, you're like, I have no idea what I was thinking.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Look, that goes back to the debate about "Mm, how much of love is really addiction and that kind of thing. But what we fall in love with is in part the person. But in part, what we fall in love with is the relationship and just having someone. In part, what we fall in love with is this idea that I don't have to be out there and dating. I found my person. I feel better in this couplehood. So I feel relieved in terms of that. There's a lot of aspects to this, which are actually not that personal to who the person is. A lot of the times when people are really heartbroken and we talk about it in these sessions, it's like... Really, what they miss tremendously is the idea of the love in the relationship, rather than that specific stand-in for who that would be.
3: Oh yeah, the idea, and also like this like storybook future telling situation of like what our life will be because they're it. It's like they think they're just like grieving the loss of this human being, but I I I so agree with that. A lot of times, it's like they're grieving the fact that they don't know when they're going to get married or that they have to get up back out there. And if they want to get married, they have to find that again or the house you were going to live in or the trips you were going to take. It's like this future and it's really that those things could happen with a million different people, but that's the person. Okay. So here's the other thing. The no contact thing. I think it's great. What are your thoughts on people who remain friends? Do you think that that is almost like a disaster waiting to happen or?
4: Well, do you really remain friends? In other words, the person who did the breaking up might be like, well, I don't hate that person. I'm happy to be friends with them. But if you're, but if you're the person who's heartbroken and you're trying to get over that person, what I say to, to the people I work with is you cannot be friends with them right now because you are not seeing them in any kind of objective lens. You are just saying to yourself, well, I want to remain friends because that's your way of getting a fix. That's your way of yes. staying around so that maybe they'll come to the senses and realize the mistake and that they love me after all, etc." I always say to people, take a break for six months. After six months, if you're truly over them, and hopefully you are. Um, some people, it'll take longer depending on the relationship. But if at that point, once you're no longer heartbroken, once you're over them, if then you want to be friends, by all means, reach out. And a lot of people say, oh, fine, I'll do that. And- Again, most of them don't feel the need to reach out once they're no longer.
3: They don't want to be friends. So uh, yeah, it's like keeping them in proximity of like, I really just want to be their friend because I'm hoping they're going to change their mind or something's going to happen and I'm going to get my fairy tale again. The other thing is like with the no contact, what makes that I think more difficult now, and I wonder if you feel the same, is this the social media aspect of normally you break up with somebody and you can avoid them if you want to, for the most part. I mean, you might run into them if you live in the same town or you go to the same school or work in a similar place. But now it's like, well, we can see what they're doing almost every day if we want to. And so with a no contact, I'm assuming you're like, block them, unfriend them, all of that, delete it.
4: Well, first of all, my question to people, why would you want to? Because what I try and explain to people is that they didn't break up with you, hopefully, on a whim. It's not that they broke up Tuesday morning and go, "Eh, you know what, maybe not, and they break up. They've been thinking about it for a long time, i.e., they are much further along in the process of detaching and rebuilding their lives than you are. So what you're going to see is someone who's in a much better place than you are, and all that's going to read to you is like, Wow, they seem so happy and I'm so miserable. That's so unfair. How come? You know, so nothing good really comes out of it. But it's really complicated, in fact, because, yes, you should un- you should block and unfollow and all of that. The problem is the longer the relationship, the more intertwined our lives. You're going to unblock and unfollow the cousin who might post pictures of them and updates of them because they were at the same party or the friend of the friend who bumped into them. You can't. So you end up having to block and a lot of people. And even then you might, things might get through. Um, and what I also to say to people is like, maybe take a break from social media then yeah. for a bit, since you need to rebuild your life anyway. And I don't mean on social media. I mean, in real life, maybe it's sort of idea to take a break from social media and focus on re- Getting in touch with friends, getting in touch with hobbies, getting in touch with, you know, activities that you dropped because you compromised, redecorating your apartment, et cetera. Maybe that's the focus at the beginning.
3: Yeah, I didn't even think about that of like, you might think you've done, you know, damage control by unfollowing this person. Then you open up your phone and there's a picture of them with your group of friends or their cousin, somebody random that you forgot you and followed. And it gives you almost gives you the hit accidentally.
4: Mm hmm that happens a lot
2: Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
3: Going along that same idea, then what do you say or how would you categorize when it's okay to like get back out there? And I kind of want to ask like your opinion on this idea of like the rebound idea of should we go out and get out there as fast as you can to, to get somebody else in your brain? Or is it okay to just like go out and have fun and date around? Or should we be waiting until certain feelings have totally subsided?
4: I, I have a very unscientific criteria for when you uh, are okay to go on dates again. And basically what I say to people is like, if you can get through the date without crying and without talking about your ex, oh yeah, try it. Now, when I say try it, I mean, some people feel like maybe I can do that. And then they end up bursting into tears and talking about their ex and it turns out, mm, no, it wasn't ready. But we do know that the sooner you can get back out there, it usually is associated with a speedier recovery. Because you're trying to, A, remind yourself that there are other people who might be interested, even if you're not very emotionally available. And sometimes people will meet someone and they go, you know, I know they're nice. I know they're good. I'm just so not in the place to be interested in somebody right now. And what I say is then, then tell them, you've recently had a relationship and you want to take it slowly because you like them, but you need to take it slowly. And if they're okay with that, then take it slowly and they'll probably grow on you. Yeah. But the idea is if you're not out there, and, and you don't have to go out there the next day, obviously, etc. But it is a good reminder because it reminds you of your worth. It reminds you that you're appealing to people, that people are interested in being out with you. It gets you out of the house. It's a good distraction. Again, if it's too soon, it'll just fill you with sadness. And then if the idea fills you with sadness, it's too soon, obviously. Yeah. But that's what I suggest. If you think you can get through it, start doing it a little bit.
3: And that speaks to this idea that I like, really hate that our culture has really clung on to. It's that idea of this like one soulmate that we have and I like what you said around like it's going to remind you that there's other people out there that you might be able to have a tinge of a feeling for. Because I, I what I hear a lot in, in my work is like I've lost my person. Like I've lost my literal soulmate. That was the one that God created for me. And now there's no point. And any, anybody else just like would not suffice. And I believe that they really believe that for at that time. And I also believe that if they were to experience other people, they would realize that they can like now that they're if their minds were open to it, other people. So even if you have like a like little bit of a feeling towards somebody, it kind of gets those wheels turning.
4: But look, my response to I hear this all the time, right? This was my one soulmate. This was the one God chose for me. And I always say things like, if this were the one God chose for you, they would want you too, and it would be this happily ever after. By definition, it's not. By definition, it's not your soulmate, because your soulmate would be somebody who would be there with you forever. By definition, this is not that. Person number one. And number two, you know, just the evidence is the reality is that people can fall in love with multiple people in their lives and feel, you know, very, very strongly about each one. What this idea of a soulmate is, is it's just to be very blunt about it, it's it's a result of the pain that people are in and the feeling they're in of hopelessness, because grieving again brings up feelings of helplessness and of hopelessness. And when we're feeling helpless and when we're feeling hopeless, we're like, oh, we'll never find someone. So the, the, the thought of hurting again is so difficult. Let me just kind of assume that you know, this was the, my, my one shot and I often excuse myself from having to really work on recovery. There are some very rare love stories where this was, look, if you've been with your soulmate for 30 years and then something happened, you had a 30 year run. That's amazing. But it's absolutely, there's no scientific foundation to assume that we only fall in love with one person um, in life and we're incapable of falling in love with another or finding another one worthy of that love. That's just not true.
3: Yeah. And I was just, this morning I went and I got my hair done I was talking to my stylist about, we were both talking about friends and people that we've experienced this with. And and then you probably have this in your life and then also in your work life of individuals who have these relationships, they don't work out. And- they want to process it with you as a friend or as a professional. This is, happens in both those areas. They want to process this breakup with you. And it turns into this like cyclical conversation where you have the conversation and then they get to this point and they're like, okay, they kind of hear what you're saying, but they kind of ask the questions that they're asking like 15 different ways. And I like what you said. I'm just going to be very blunt. Like I liked you. Being, you know, this is not your soulmate. else they would be with you. But I, my question is with those people... I've had an experience where at one. Well, I've done this a lot with clients, but with a friend at one point, I I said, you know, we've had this conversation about fifty times by now, and you keep asking a different version of the same question to me, and I keep giving you the same answer. So my experience is telling me that you don't want to hear the answer. So I don't think I'm the person that you want to talk to right now, and I I personally don't want to keep having this conversation until you're ready to have this conversation. And what I want to know is like. For you, when you are being blunt and like giving that like hard, like not tough love, but like truthful feedback to somebody who is like in excruciating pain and playing this tape over and over in their head, when do you decide or is that even a thought in your head? But when do you decide when to say like, hey, open your eyes. This is what's going on right now. And how long do you let people be almost in this like denial period?
4: I'm quite impatient. Okay. When it comes okay. to that, <laughs> I'll be I'll be you know honest and, and blunt again. Look, what I say to people is I, I'm impatient at the second time that we're having the same conversation. Why are we having it again? Yeah. And so literally, is certainly if it's a you know if it's if it's somebody I'm working with, but also if it's a friend, I'll be very compassionate and I'll be and you know, I'll say, look, I'm really really sorry, and I know that you're really really hurting. But these questions that you're asking are really ruminations. They're really obsessive thoughts that you're just spinning around in an emotional hamster wheel. And the problem with them, I'll say to them, is that each time you go through that questioning and the pondering and all of that, it actually reactivates the pain and the loss and the distress that you're feeling, which would be okay if you got something out of it, like, a new insight, like some action plans, like a different perspective on the situation. But the way you're going about asking these questions, you're not gaining anything new. You're just like, uh, you know, stuck in this groove and deepening the groove and going around and around in painful circles. I personally don't want to participate in it because I don't think it's useful for you.
3: Well, I love that. And I think I might start to use that more often. You said in your TED Talk is that one of the reasons that like we can't accept like really closure and we can't accept the answers. Like the reason why somebody might've broken up with us. The reason that we can't accept this is because that pain hurts so bad. And sometimes the reason somebody broke up with us is just kind of simple. It's just like, I don't feel the same way anymore.
4: It's not sometimes. It's, it's all the time. It's, it's almost all the time. The very few times that somebody will I like broke up with you because truly I'm an international spy and now I don't <laughs> want to put you. That doesn't happen. Never. It's always because... You know, there were commitment issues, this person drifted emotionally, the timing wasn't right, the compatibility wasn't there. And, and what I say there is that when you're feeling such dramatic pain, you want to think that there was as dramatic a story behind that pain, as opposed to the person kind of drifted emotionally and just fell out of love. And so they waited a bit and then just ended the relationship. So unsatisfying, so unsexy, so undramatic. That's what's causing me all this pain, that, and I can't do anything about it. Yes, that, unfortunately.
3: Yeah. And I mean, I don't want that either, but it's like, it is what it is and we can't change reality.
4: You are, but what we do need to do is to accept the reason because the closure there is important to us. In other words, it is important to us to be able to close the book on the why. The why really has us lingering in, in, in hellish limbo in a way that we should not because it's not, Useful And so what I say to people is, first of all, people say like, well, I don't really know the real reason why. And I'm like, well, you know, really, God forbid, you should know the real reason why. It's not appealing. You want somebody to tell you every little fault and pet peeve they have with you? Who wants that? It's not necessary. And it's just, it, all it adds up to is I don't love you anymore. That's the bottom line. They don't love you anymore. And the minute you can accept that, and if you want to put a rationale on it, like, well, they drifted emotionally and didn't tell me that wasn't fair, and they didn't give us a chance, fair enough on that one, or they have commitment issues, fair enough on that one, or the timing, compatibility, something great, but close the book on the why. It's holding you back.
3: Yeah. Okay. So what are some tangible things we can kind of leave people with that are like struggling with this maybe in the moment of I'm feeling like extremely like stuck in the mud of this. I hear that it should be a clean break. Maybe they're going to go clean their Instagram followers out. But what are some other things that might be helpful for these people to stop the rumination and stop the asking of the questions and living in that limbo?
4: Okay, so first of all, I, I do want to just mention that you know, in in my podcast, dear therapists, I'm doing the podcast with with Laurie Gottlieb. We deal with heartbreak. We deal with a lot of these kind of loss and grief issues, and we do very tangible homeworks to people. Okay, at the end of every episode that they then have to do and report back how it went. So it's kind of the that kind of advice show where you yeah um, actually find out what happens which was always my pet peeve with advice and the other thing i just want to point out i'm i know laurie was on the show i'm not sure she pointed this out is that what makes it challenging for us as therapists is that we choose a letter together but we don't discuss it and then we do conjoint therapy live with the person when i have no idea what laurie's thinking she's no idea what i'm thinking i don't know where she wants to go she doesn't know where i want to go and it's all live so it's a high wire act in do you guys argue We don't argue because I can see when she's asking these questions where she might be going, she can see where I might be going and I might be like, okay, you know, that's a good direction. Let's go with that or vice versa. So
3: that's interesting. We don't
4: know it, but yeah, it is a little bit, it's quite challenging for us, but, but we thought that would have more like, you know, drama in it, which it does, you know, it just keeps it a little bit more alive, but that aside, the, the main thing you have to do is that there's a real rebuild that goes on. After you have a breakup, you go from a we to an I, Um, You suddenly have all your weekends planned because even if you're not doing anything, you have a person to not do anything with. You have to change your physical environment. You have to redefine who you are now as a single person. Are you going back to who you were before the relationship? Are you reinventing because it's been a long time? What are the things that you adopted, the habits, the, the friends, the lifestyles that you adopted during the relationship? do you want to keep? Which do you want to discard? What compromises you made that were worthwhile? Which not? Do you want to go back to? All that is a very intentional thought process of how do I rebuild my life? How do I fill the voids, both physically, emotionally, socially, that this breakup left? And it's with that intentionality that it gives you action that you can take. It gives you things to actually figure out and do, which is the path to healing from heartbreak rather than the stewing and the lamenting
3: yeah the thoughts and the thinking and the rumination isn't going to pull you out of anything but the action and the experimenting and going out and literally building your life i really like that and that can be in a billion different ways it sounds like it can be with hobbies it can be with like new routines it can be experiencing new places you never went or making new friends and that can be exciting like i think that exactly what people might have a hard time with in the like deep depression of heartbreak is that things don't feel like it, they can be exciting anymore but there's all this newness out there and in the episode last week that i did about closure kind of what i ended with and it was kind of like a full circle of my thought process but i what i ended with is i think that sometimes it's not so much just like tangible closure that we really need, sometimes it's like a piece of hope, not that that relationship is going to come back around, but hope that your life can be good again and your life will be good again, because that's, I think, something that we kind of just lose sight of.
4: I agree. I'll just to say one thing about that. I say to heartbroken people about that, the same thing I say to parents of a newborn. Hmm. And he'll be like, really? Because how are they similar? Yeah. And, and here's here's what I say. I stay to the parents of the newborn once a week, have a date night, leave the house, even if it's for an hour, and do something. And then I say to them, you are not going to enjoy it. You're gonna to be too tired too overwhelmed and too worried about the baby to enjoy it, yeah. but do it anyway. The enjoyment will catch up with you. And it's the same to heartbreak. Find that thing. It's not going to be that interesting or exciting at the beginning, but if it just is something you could tolerate and you know, theoretically, that there's something you would be interested in the interest, the excitement will come, but it will come more quickly if you keep doing it and putting yourself in those situations. Again, not when you're in that situation and crying your eyes out. No, 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 too soon. But thereafter, Do it even before the big emotional oomph is there because that will take time. But putting yourself in those situations, will accelerate the recovery.
3: Well, it's also like giving agency back. Like that is just, it's like empowering that like, I don't have to sit here and like wallow in my bed for the rest of my life and wait for the healing to come. I'm sure you hear all the time, like, when is it going to feel better? When is it going to feel better? When is it going to feel better? And kind of what I'm hearing you say is like, I don't know exactly when it's going to feel better, but we can speed that process up if you like put some action into it and you have Power in creating that better feeling. You don't have to just wait for it to walk through your front door.
4: Absolutely right. I said to people, I don't know when it will feel better, but I know what you can do that will make it feel better sooner.
3: Yeah, yeah, I love that. So I want to kind of just like wrap up in that idea that like, if you are somebody who is just like in the depths of this, like something that I want you to hear is that, yeah, we can't prescribe you on this time, this date, this place, you're going to snap out of this. But we can offer you the fact that you can start creating agency and power and and change today that can happen today. So before we say goodbye, is there anything you want to shout out? I know you mentioned your, your podcast, which I like did not know that part about it, that you didn't know it was. That's so interesting. As a therapist, but, It
4: suddenly gives you a whole different way to listen to it. You're like, oh, wow, they're trying to figure it out as they're doing it. They really have no idea. i just going. like
3: the anxiety that I would have, like, forget about if you didn't have a plan going in, because that's kind of how we have to we have to be able to go with the flow in general. But to have somebody else where you're like, we got to, you know, get in line at some point.
4: Right, and we don't pause to kind of like figure out what we're doing. Oh. We really have to figure it out live as we're there. So, yeah, that that's. Do
3: you it, do it, it in person or is it?
4: Well, Laurie's on the west coast. Some of these, oh, Coast, so we do virtual. it, but we do it over Zoom. We don't show okay. the people, you know, but they, we, we change their names. Yeah, but we need them because just in queues, in terms of when people are talking, and sometimes right. it's a couple or two people, so we do need that. But no, but that's why it feels like a live session because it's it is, and it's and it's one where you really. You know, so it, it's interesting.
3: Yeah, in I love that. that. Way. I love that. The only that. other
4: shout out I will, I have is that my website, guywinch.com has okay. links to my three TED Talks, to three books. There's another one, hopefully along the way that you can find out about and to a lot of other just resources. I've written hundreds of articles, which I hope people will find interesting. Uh, I write for TED and I write for other places. And so um, just guywinch.com, guiwinc Okay.
3: Amazing. And then on Instagram, is your handle just at Guy Winch?
4: At Guy Winch on Instagram, at Guy Winch on Twitter, okay. LinkedIn, uh, Guy Winch author on Facebook. But those links are again in my in, Okay, my We'll
3: put all those also in the show notes too, so people can get right to that.
4: And the good news is that we are still taping season three of Dear Therapist. And if anyone of the listeners wants to be a guest on our show and get this live therapy from uh, both of us, um, again, with your name changed and everything... Write to Lori and Guy at iHeartMedia.com. That's L O R I A N D G U I at iHeartMedia.com. Just, you know, like two hundred and fifty 50 words or something. Tell us what's going on, what's the problem, what you need help with. And we'd love for you to be a guest on the show.
3: Oh, I love that. I wish I could be a guest on the show. <laughs>
4: um,
3: and it's like essentially free therapy session, right? yeah okay you guys jump on it because that is not a cheap thing to come by and it's very valuable all right well thank you so much
4: you're very welcome great talking to you and have a great weekend yourself
3: you too bye
4: Bye bye-bye
2: June 30th, 2024.